miss the show, no worries. On point and on the podcast. The pandemic forcing a lot of us to do a gut check. Some of us being forced out of careers. Others now saying, hey, I need a new career. We'll talk to somebody who's got a message for women who say, if you want to talk about the importance of financial independence and get that, she's got the information on how you can do that because there are some lucrative markets that have the flexibility women need. We'll talk about how we honor our war dead, but there are a lot of vets serving our country today who get lost in the headlines over scandals of sexual misconduct or who still serve our country only to come back and then have to fight to get the supports for their suffering. So we'll talk about what they go through on a day today and what it's like to watch their blood and sweat crumble away, as is in the case of Afghanistan. Lest we forget, I think sometimes we do. And could we be heading into a conflict again? It may be closer than we think, as NATO has just been put on notice. So what does that mean for today's vets who are now in the direct line of fire? Let's get talking. The day I shipped out the numbered a dozen upon my return we're a hundred or so from the coast and from this the is on point with Alex Pearson on global news radio I shall grow not old as we that are left grow old age shall not weary them nor the years condemned. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, November 11th. And uh, like a lot of you, I always find that I find this day to be uh, very somber. And I think it's maybe the older I get, uh, the more I reflect and start to appreciate, you know, what, what men like my great grand or my grandfathers uh, both went through and, and your connections, of course, to, to the wars. And, and you look at all these. Uh, men and women, and, and a lot of these voices are gone. And we're at a point now where they'll soon be no more. At a time in the world where there are very real threats looming. And so, you know, the burden is, is left to us to carry their message. Make sure their sacrifices are not forgotten. So I feel it's important, you know, to do my part, which is, of course, the least of, of, of wearing a poppy, you know, attending a service, ensure making... Uh, Surely making uh, sure that my son wears his poppy, which this year he did, starting November 1st. And I think this year was really the first time he started asking about what it all means. You know, why is he wearing this? And so, you know, he now understands that his great-grandfathers uh, went to war to give us our freedoms and um, that he was shot in the throat and came home. And I try to explain the why, but it is a very kind of big conversation still for an eight-year-old to learn. So for now, I, I really just want to make sure that he's learning early and creating the habits that starting November 1st, we wear the poppy and we use these days of November to remember. And, uh, you know, we, we can only pray that this gen younger generation will never actually have to walk in the footsteps that the young men of yesterday did so far and so, so many years ago. 
And I think, uh, you know, as these vets disappear and these older generations uh, leave us, I think parents have to take an active role to make sure that future generations don't forget. And so, and I, I think parents are doing it. I certainly hope they are. I was uh, happy to see bigger crowds this year, certainly at the um, services and the schools doing services. And, you know, we hear the phrase uh, a lot that they fought for our freedom. So it's, it's not lost on me what men like my grandfather would think today about how we have guarded those freedoms. And I think many would say not very well. I mean, for many of us, this pandemic, um, you know, freedoms have come into sharp focus because we've been forced to give up many under the guise of doing, you know, what we need to for the greater good. And many of us have done willingly, I'd say, our part. But I think we have to also be honest about it and not be naive to the reality that politicians have certainly stepped over the line. And the thing about freedoms is once you give a freedom up, it doesn't come back. And so I think that's, you know, why we have to be so very careful about, you know, watching liberties disappear. Maybe that's why I get so angry about, uh, you know, what's going on with some of this stuff during the pandemic. And we give politicians the, dis the distinction of being honorable. But, you know, it's not the politicians who gave us the freedoms they're now removing. You know, it's not the politician who fought for our right to say and express what we want. Certainly not the politician who fought for the democracy that we often abuse. And it won't be a politician who has to respond should the call go out again. A and it could at any day. Uh, right now, we have troops stationed in Ukraine, and NATO is now on notice as Poland uh, and Belarus inch closer to a conflict that we would be obligated to take part in. And it is one that Russia is certainly making its presence known, uh, as it earlier this week flew nuclear bombers over the conflict zone, almost a, a provocation. So in the coming days, and we will talk about it later in the show, we could be seeing some kind of action with our own with our own Canadian soldiers. And so while the dignitaries and the politicians make all the speeches today, it is the soldier, it is our soldiers who give us all these things that we often, I think, take for granted. And of course, part of the story of today is that uh, in the Ottawa service, there was a pretty big interruption at what is no question the most sensitive part of the service. And it was angering. Uh, it was really gross. But the inter interruption was said to be for a suspicious package near the war memorial, but the prime minister arrived two minutes before 11 o'clock at that moment of silence, but the governor general, who has to arrive after the prime minister, then arrived in the middle of the moment of silence, which then someone in the service stupidly then interrupted the moment of silence to introduce Governor General Mary Simon and the Silver Cross mother. And no matter the reason, there are just some things you cannot be late to, right? And one of those things is Remembrance Day, especially during the two minutes of silence. So I don't know why they stopped the ceremony to introduce the dignitaries. I mean, that's just stupid. It made the governor general look bad. Not her fault. She got held back if this was a security issue, as we've been told. And so they should have just allowed the moment to go by and introduce the officials after. Because 
it got immediate blowback as it was seen as being very insensitive. And it's not her fault, obviously. But, you know, maybe some of the uh, blowback is because of our government's approach to military with all the, you know, sexual misconduct allegations that have cast a shadow over the military. You know, the fact that Trudeau told our vets they ask for too much. The fact that vets today are still begging for supports that they, they can't get, you know. So there was this automatic conclusion that the prime minister showed up late. Um, well, I think it speaks to the fact that it's totally plausible he would do something like this, especially after Tofino. You know, his office lied and lied and lied. And so, I, I mean, there is a degree of, yeah, it could happen because he's like that. And then, and I'll just say this. I mean, those advising Mr. Trudeau, and there have to be a few adults around him. I, I have to think that there are adults around him. But someone should have told him that it was in no way appropriate to take selfies moments after the ceremony at the unknown soldier, the tomb of the unknown soldier. Like, really? Is there no one advising this man to say, you know what, not today? I know the kids were excited probably to see the prime minister. It's not their fault. But there should have been someone around the prime minister say, you know what, today is probably not the best day to do this. Certainly not where Corporal, you know, Nathan Cirillo was murdered. I mean, there is a time and a place for selfies. Seconds after Remembrance Day that you just interrupted. On pretty sacred ground. Not a good look. I'm just saying it's ultra tacky. And other reports that I've heard from people who were at the Ottawa service um, suggest that Sophie was there kind of posing around too. So look, that that's just, it's not okay. Do better. So that's why I think there was so much reaction to why people thought that the Prime Minister uh, had disturbed or uh, interrupted the service. Great to have you here with us. So we know the pandemic has not only turned everything on its head, I think it's given most people pause for thought about things like life and career and what we need and maybe don't need. And so for many of us, this past 19 months has pushed people to make changes that they may not have taken. And while I don't really believe in kitschy phrases, phrases like she session, there have definitely been different impacts on women that would include things like increases to domestic violence, which we've talked about. And the fact that many women had to leave jobs to come and you know take care of kids and do things like homeschooling. And so now a lot of women are looking for their next step, uh, find a a way to find security, maybe some financial independence, but they need some flexibility. And so they don't want to find themselves in this position again. And one of the industries women are turning to is real estate investment. And this is an industry, I think, that is thought to be dominated by men. Maybe it was once upon a time, but women are now becoming big players in it because it's lucrative and it offers flexibility. Liza Rogers joins me. She is part of a team of 10 women across this country who want to inspire other women to consider this option so they can have this kind of independence. They also launched a book called From Ordinary to Extraordinary, Success Stories from Women Investing in Real Estate. Liza Rogers, a lead author on this, joins me now. Good to have you. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. So how did this come about? Where was the need that you saw? Was it one of those things that when the pandemic hit, it was like, look, we got to get talking. We've got to share our expertise. It actually started uh, a few years before the pandemic. When I moved to Victoria, 
I was really fascinated by what, by what real estate could offer. Uh, I was someone who had just come back from, from a big failure and needed to look <laughs> towards my future and figure out what, uh, what those next steps I needed to take were and, and how to set myself up for retirement and, and just set myself up for the next, you know, the, the best working years of my life, per se. And as I was going through this learning process and learning that real estate seemed to offer the most flexibility, as you mentioned, and the most opportunity, I saw that women weren't looking at this and they were looking at me like I was crazy. So I thought, okay, there's an opportunity here to get more women educated about the power of real estate while I'm learning about it at the same time. Fast forward yeah. to the pandemic and then that gets amplified. Now we've got so many women who are, as you mentioned, struggling in all kinds of different ways. And, and we, as a group of women decided we need to take some action here and, uh, and get more women inspired. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the statistics, uh, the first year of a divorce, uh, a woman's standard of living dropped by 73%. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I think when you're looking at your career at the beginning of it, you don't think about the parts, um, you know, in your 20s of what will I do later? What, how do I want my life to look? But certainly, if you find yourself all of a sudden in a situation where your marriage is, is collapsing or, or coming apart, and maybe you've been someone who's taken time into the workforce, all of a sudden, the reality hits you that you have no independence to carve out your next step. So it can be very daunting for a lot of women, certainly those who, who may uh, find themselves in a new kind of life after 50. Yes, yes, and you've hit, you've hit on a number of points there. I mean, first of all, the whole marriage thing, right? Uh, and it's interesting, I just read the most updated statistic a couple of weeks ago, the number of broken marriages is actually getting lower because less people are getting married. So, 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 so few people in North America are actually getting married now. And that's one of the things that's driving women towards real estate. They're not waiting for uh, a man. Uh, they're not, they're, they're, they have their own careers. They're able to start carving out their future. And so real estate is one of the things that they've been looking at to say, okay, you know, the bank will lend me 80, 90, 95% to get into this kind of opportunity. Uh, and I can actually buy a, a house or a condo. And, and so one of the things that we really talk about is if you can't do it on your own, collaborate with other women, you know, whether that's family members or friends, uh, it is possible. And we really need to start looking at, at, at the statistics and how we can either improve on them or, or work around them or not become one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago. I mean, it was in our, my lifetime, certainly, that women um, just didn't have any independence. You needed a man to sign and help you get a loan. I mean, it, it almost seems uh, unthinkable by today's standards, but that wasn't all that long ago. But that has changed. And so women can, in fact, get, get things like financing, which has opened a door, um, you know, to the real estate market on the investment side, so that it's not just about um, showing houses, you're not limited now. You can actually buy a house, flip it, and then carve out an, in, uh, you know, a living like that, which can be risky, but it can also be very, very lucrative. Yeah, and that's where you know one of the passions that we have, as I mentioned, is collaborative, right? One of the things that we're really passionate about with REN, the Women's Real Estate Network, is the, the idea of collaboration. Share the risk, share the reward. There's no reason for, for anybody to have to do this alone. And when you partner up with someone, you know, one person might have more of the finance and one person might have more of the skill. One person may have more resources. One person might want to go pick mm -hmm. up the hammer on the weekend. So there's so many different ways that you can get into real estate investing. And some of them are very active. And, and a lot of them, in fact, most of them are passive. You don't have to do anything. And you can start with as little as $5,000 to get involved in a, in a good investment that's solid, has a good track record, and is, is 
is, is managed by uh, a groups and, and organizations that are just strategically and, and stringently looked at by the Canadian Securities Commission. It is a tough time, though. I mean, real estate is so, so hot right now. We've got some kind of headwinds coming at us with rising inflation, the threat with in interest um, rates going up. And so how how does that change this? Will will women be comfortable um, taking the risks? Are there opportunities at this time? Um, you know, are there groups that can teach you about when to strike, when not to, when you get in, when not to? Because I think a lot of people on the outside looking in would say, oh, I'm not so sure I'd want to, you know, invest in real estate right now when it's so unaffordable. Mm -hmm. and, and there are so many areas that are unaffordable. And the reality is that it's going to take the private sector and it's going to take investors to help solve the housing crisis that we have in Canada. You know, we need we need people to build homes. And the, the more people we have that understand real estate and that understand it from from as many different facets as they feel comfortable, the easier it's going to be for us to start building more homes uh, and help to solve the, the housing crisis. Part of the issue, you know, you mentioned the, the uh, opportunities. One of the things that we say in real estate is the best time to buy a property was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. There are always opportunities and the pandemic showed us that, right? It was another one of those times where here we are in a global crisis. And for the first two months of that crisis, we all kind of stuck our head in the sand and went, oh my God, what do we do now? And then there were so many people who saw that with the, with the crisis came opportunity. We know that 1.2 million people are going to be immigrating to Canada over the next three years. We know Canada is one of the safest, greatest countries to live in in the world. So people are going to continue to move here and we need to provide housing for them. And so real estate in general, there are always going to be bumps. There are always going to be places that are unaffordable. But in general, the experts, the accountants, the banks, the, 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 the people who have the economic forecasting know that that real estate is going to continue to be a stable investment. And there are always pockets where you can you can get in and, and get started. I mean, our group right now is looking at Campbell River and there's a number of reasons why why Campbell River makes sense. And when you when you understand what factors drive the whole real estate engine, then you can look at places and say, okay, that makes sense for these reasons. And so that's a, a fairly safe risk to take. Just quickly before I let you go, Liza, it, you know, if you decided, OK, this sounds great, I'm in, how long would it take to kind of get to the point where you can actually start doing it? Well, that, you know, that's one of the big things that we suggest to people is just get started. And, and the best way to get started is just to get in a room, uh, get get a, you know, pick up a book, get in into a space where you're reading or seeing or being with people who are doing it. I mean, that's always the first step. There's so many people, the naysayers out there who, who are going to discourage you from, from getting started, but that is the key step just to get started. And that is get in a room with people, read a book, listen to a podcast, just start to get that kind of idea churning. And then as you start to, to get a little bit of the, of the lingo, you know, go to open houses, talk to a realtor, reach out to one of the many real estate groups across Canada. There are so many in every community. Meetup is a great place to find meetup groups, uh, real estate investing groups in your local community. And all of them feature experts who deliver education about mortgages and, and um, you know, how to find deals and what not to do if you're doing a flip and getting your finances in order, doing a budget. I mean, there's just so much education that's out there and, and free or very close to free. And, uh, and when you have a team working on it together, you don't make as many mistakes. So it's a little yeah. bit less daunting. Sure. Yeah. And that moral support can certainly go a long way. Um, no question about it. Opportunity to be had. So I appreciate you uh, opening the door to one. Thanks, Liza. Thank you, Alex. Great to uh, great to chat with you this morning.
That is Eliza Rogers. The book is From Ordinary to Extraordinary, Success Stories from Women Investing in Real Estate. So if you're looking for something, get cracking. From World War I and II to Korea to the Gulf War to Afghanistan and countless peacekeeping missions around the world, our brave Canadian service members have always been on the front lines defending freedom and liberty for all. Let us pause this week and show our respect to those who have fought for our democracy and defended our rights. The Premier at the Queen's Park service this morning. And, you know, we remember the great wars, but there have been many wars since, and there will be more. And we honor our war dead, but do we honor the vets who are still with us today? Uh, No, I think we can say that categorically. It's, I think, pretty disgraceful. How today's vets are treated. I mean, there is a decades-old backlog of supports still that have yet to be delivered for those who have PTSD or need supports for injuries they suffered during service, and they either won't get them for years or if at all. And the Trudeau government says it will do more, but, you know, government after government has made these promises, and yet here we are with vets still fighting for what they were promised. And there are a lot of vets alive who fought in Afghanistan, you know, to risk their lives to free those in that country, and uh, this Remembrance Day they watch all that blood and loss and sweat and tears crumble away. Philip Ralph is a director of health services for Wounded Warriors Canada. He's a retired regimental chaplain to the 32nd Combat Engineer Regiment. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Alex. What is it like, um, you know, sitting back as a modern-day vet, um, you know, who has served? What is it like on this Remembrance Day? Well, I mean, I had the the privilege of uh, uh, participating in the service at uh, Old City Hall today. Yeah, it's always a beautiful uh, service. I mean, watching, I mean, I mean, the most moving part to me was watching a a veteran who was 100 years old from World War II Uh, laying a wreath on this, you know, 100th anniversary of the poppy with, uh, you know, a a real Canadian hero, uh, Major General Dave Fraser, who commanded Mm -hmm. the forces uh, twice in Afghanistan. Uh, You know, I mean, that symbol of of those two veterans separated Mm -hmm. by decades, uh, going up there in unity and, and laying that wreath at at uh, the cenotaph was just uh i mean i had to speak right after that and it was almost too much <laughs> uh it was yeah it, it's a shared camaraderie and a shared respect uh, and, and and a different kind of warfare that uh you know a hundred year old bet would have been you know barehanded in the in the trenches um, modern war is a little bit different but still the same the same uh you know fears no question about it yeah i mean that that level of respect and uh you know i mean anybody who's who's who served our nation in uniform is keenly aware that we serve on the you know the backs and the shoulders of of those who went before and and it is our hope that our service is then uh, inspiring to the next uh generation of, of veterans that take up the cause yeah, and there will be yet another call um, to action, uh, maybe not in my lifetime, but um, there will be. And, and interestingly, 
um, Major General David Fraser, who we've had on this show many times, you know, he served in Afghanistan, was the architect of one of the most dangerous missions uh, in Afghanistan, you know. For, I think, yeah. men like him and officers like him to, to see what has happened, um, you know, to that situation in that country uh, is got to be pretty tough, um, especially knowing they're still in the process of trying to save people and get them out of that country. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, it's hard, but I mean, I mean, I heard uh, Dave speak at a 9-11 event uh, this year, and, and he made a, re- you know, because there's a lot of sadness, a lot of struggle, a lot of questions, you know, particularly uh, uh, among the veterans that, that served in Afghanistan about, you know, the value and worth of what they did. Um, but, the, you know, the, the, the one, uh, you know, a point that Dave did make that, that really resonated with me was, uh, um, you know, okay, uh, the Taliban have, have come back, uh, you know, and however, they are going to inherit a very different Afghanistan than they left. Yeah. Uh, because there was, um, you know, 20 years of, of the population being educated. And an educated population is a lot different to control and coerce than a population that is ignorant. So, uh, you know, to, to, to the men and women that, that uh, you know, went through that conflict, they did uh, what Canadians have always done. Uh, they punched above their weight. Yeah. Uh, they, 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 they answered the call, and they should, uh, this Remembrance Day, um, you know, remember that the Canadians, you know, if I could give one word to, to, uh, to really tie together what Canadians have brought all through the decades of service, um, because, you know, Let's face it. We're not a country that went out to 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 gain territory in our in our conflicts. We're ones that mm-hmm. came to the aid of others. And uh, you know, uh, I would like to think that any time anyone in the world sees a Canadian soldier with a, a sailor, uh, air personnel with 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 our flag on the shoulder, the one word that comes to hope to 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 their mind is the word hope. Yeah. That's what they and, Yeah, but they also, um, you know, are determined. Um, you know, we talk yeah. to vets all the time right. on this show. They're still determined to, to carry yeah. out. They haven't finished their mission. They're still trying to get yeah. these men and women out. Um, and so yeah. it speaks volumes, um, you know, to, to, to what they're willing to sacrifice. And yet, you yeah. know, we have so many vets in this country. You know, I, I often think of how guys like my grandfather managed to come back and make a life after what they saw. I can't imagine what they saw back in those great wars. But then you've got Afghan vets and, and other vets who have gone to, to war. They come back. They're injured. They have mental health injuries. Uh, they got a lot of problems, and and they don't get government support on either. I mean, there's lots of blame to go around, but still, that they fight so hard to get the support they need today is is really, I think, a stain on this country that we need to do better. Yeah, well, I heard your intro, and, and you're right. I mean, it's you know, parties aside, it's been government after government that has promised things like seamless transition from your release from the Canadian forces to the transfer to veterans affairs. And we're, we're, you know, a long way from that for sure. Uh, but you know, the, the very fact that we recognize that there are issues, I mean, I, uh, I think of, uh, my uncle who, uh, you know, grew up in Mimico. He, mm-hmm. he volunteered for the second world war. 
uh, he, he was, a uh, you know, he came in to, to replenish the, the, the troops with the South Alberta regiment. So here's a young boy from, uh, Southern Ontario that ended up in the South Alberta regiment. And he and his tank crew were blown up in the Scheldt. Uh, he was the only one who survived, uh, you know, messed up his inner ear, but that wasn't his major problem. Um, you know, I, I can remember very vividly as a child, uh, being at family gatherings, etc., and I never knew that my uncle had served in the Second World War until he died. Uh, yeah, they and, didn't talk about it. So, and he was a, you know, but he was a, but I knew there was something off, and I knew he was a very broken man. And the thing, and the fact is that for mental health injuries uh, after the Second World War, there was there were no services. There, yeah. you know, it was something that nobody really thought of and talked about. Uh, and I often wonder if, if uh, you know, organizations like ours, when the Warriors Canada had been around and, and, and my uncle had been able to take advantage of the, the programs we offer, uh, how much better and how much, how much fuller his life might have been. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think you bring up a good point. There's a lot of hurt that went uh, unchecked, unnoticed, and untold. And uh, yeah. so we've got to do better for the, the vets today. Philip, I'm out of time. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wish I could give you more time. But yeah. I thank you very much for your service and for thank and for joining yeah. us today. Yeah, and my pleasure. And uh, any time that uh, you, you wish to call, I'm here. Thank you. Always a platform. Thank yeah. you. Philip Ralph, okay. retired regimental chaplain to the 32nd Combat Engineer Regiment. So the saying is that the great wars were to be the last wars. Of course, we have seen many wars since, smaller, not as deadly, but the threat always remains. And that's why in 1949, NATO was formed. And of course, its purpose to secure peace in Europe and guard our freedoms. And there is an issue not getting a lot of attention right now, but it should be because NATO has been put on notice by Poland after Russia took the very rare step of dispatching two nuclear capable strategic bombers to to patrol the uh, Belarusian airspace in a show of support for its close ally. And right now, Belarus seems to be provoking Poland by pushing migrants across its border, which is a violation of Poland's border and sovereignty. And these are migrants who are starving and freezing to death and have basically become a pawn to create chaos and draw Poland into conflict. And where do we come in? Well, we have forces in Latvia and Ukraine. And the concern is that if this should explode into conflict, both Russia and our forces could be pulled into this. Marcus Kolga is senior fellow at the McDonald Lorray Institute, also the founder of Disinfo Watch, also an expert in all things Indo-Pacific region. Good to have you, Marcus. Thanks for having me on, Alex. We talk a lot more these days because there are just so many issues now having that are huge in geopolitical gravity, but they have a real effect here and we should be actually paying attention. And you put this onto my radar because it really isn't on the radar. So how concerning is the situation at this point? Um, it's, it's, it's very seriously concerning. Um, you know, this is a, a, a situation that's been simmering since around June and has very much been off uh, most sort of Western radars. Um, it started in around June where whereby um, Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko, who, uh, of course, uh, was, you know, w- w- using air quotes, elected 
or reelected <laughs> in August 2020 um, <laughs> during an election that that was clearly marred with fraud, um, you know, violent repression. And um, the outcome hasn't been recognized by any of Canada's uh, allies or Canada itself. Um, Lukashenko has faced uh, significant uh, sanctions from the West and um, and he's uh, he's he took in, in June, he he attempted to retaliate uh, against those sanctions by essentially weaponi- weaponizing uh, migrants and, ex- mm-hmm. you know, exploiting the human misery that's that's, uh, you know, basically paralyzed uh, much of Iraq, uh, Syria and now Afghanistan by offering the opportunity for some of these uh, uh, you know, potential refugees in those countries to pay um, you know, $1,000, $2,000 to fly to Belarus, where they were then promised by the Belarusian government um, uh, assistance to uh, resettle in Europe. Uh, and so thousands of migrants took him up on this offer, and he's profiting from you know the life savings of these refugees, um, they would fly to Belarus, and the Belarusian authorities would transport them to the border and literally at gunpoint push them into Lithuania, Latvia, or Poland. And the governments of those countries, of course, um, saw this happening, and uh, and took efforts to to close off those borders because of the destabilizing potentially destabilizing effect of having this mass uh, wave of mig- migration coming across their border, forced migration, I should say. And yeah. so um, this is the situation has only been getting worse. More and more migrants are coming across the border, and uh, and uh, now we're seeing this situation where it, you know there are soldiers on both sides of the border. These migrants, as you mentioned, are are starving and freezing. Oh yeah, uh, and Russia and Russia is sending these bombers uh, over Belarus to express their support for uh, uh, for Lukashenko. So it's it's a very very dangerous situation there right now. Right. And and Poland has now, I guess, basically put NATO on alert, which then means that should something happen, um, our Canadian forces, which we have over there, uh, could then be pulled into a conflict that would also have Russia on the other side. I mean, it's no it's no, no. coincidence that Russia flew this plane over uh, this this bomber over uh, kind of showing off its uh, its, um, you know, flexing its muscle. But but there is possibility that we could be called into action. You're absolutely right. I mean, all three of those countries, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland, have declared states of emergency because of the situation on the border. Just yesterday, um, the Polish border guards and troops that are stationed at the border um, had to fire shots in the air to um, to try and signal to these migrants who are trying to forcibly make their way through the fence to, to not come across. Uh, the problem for these migrants is, as I mentioned, they're, they're starving. They're literally starving. They are freezing to death because they're not, they don't have the, the right sort of clothing for, a, for this, the, the type of weather, you know, sub-zero weather that's, that's happening in Poland right now. Um, there are several that have died. And so even if they wanted to turn around, and go back to into Belarus. Belarus has sent its troops to guard these migrants to make sure that they don't come into Belarus. And so they have absolutely nowhere to go. The fact that these shots were fired, and if and if there's some sort of breakthrough through that border, um, and and Polish troops or or Lithuanian troops have to push them back, um, it could cause a, a a real hot conflict in that area. And you mentioned NATO. Um, 
you know, if, if that were to happen, it would it could trigger what's called Article or NATO Article Four, which would trigger at least a political dialogue uh, about the security of NATO, which then leads to Article Five, which is uh, a you know a, uh, a military uh, defense of of any sort of security breaches that are happening. And as you mentioned, Canadian troops being there, they would be among the first uh, to react to any sort of NATO action in in the region. Yeah, I think people forget that we still have troops in that particular region. I think um, we forget that Russia very much wants, uh, you know, to, to split up the Baltics and take more control of whatever they can. Um, so it would be probably in their interest to agitate an already uh, jittery situation. Where's the international community been on this? I mean, it always seems like we find out about this just as it's about to bubble over. But why hasn't there been more talk about this? Well, I think if we're looking at the Baltics, you know, I think it's it's this area that's sort of far away. Canadians don't quite understand it. And certainly, you know, I don't think journalists cover it very much, but you're absolutely right. I mean, this is we don't have any we don't have any really international journalists to do this kind of work anymore. And that's that's the real unfortunate. Well, yeah. that, and we could have Reality. a separate, dis- yeah. separate yeah. discussion on that. The fact that, you know, I think that the, the Canadian government itself has lost interest in what's happening outside of our borders. And part of that is because, you know, our, I don't think that our, our media are, are focusing enough on what's going on uh, outside of our borders. But uh, the Baltic region really is, is, is at risk, and it always has been. Uh, this is a, an area of the world that was... Uh, that was occupied by the Soviets after the Second World War and was occupied for 50 years. Um, of course, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they, uh, they gain, regained their freedom. And mm-hmm. uh, Vladimir Putin has made it really his objective to try and uh, reassert Russia's control over that region. And, and, I'm, and I'll include Ukraine in that. So, you know, these sorts of provocations have been, going, have been ongoing uh, for the past 10 years, um, whether it's in Ukraine, uh, you know, we, we know that the, the invasion of Crimea was was a big flashpoint. There's concerns again. There's a massive military es- escalation that's, uh, and mobilization that's happening on Russia's border with Belarus. There could be something happening there. And, uh, and this use of migrants, although there's no evidence that Russia is directly involved in it, there is no doubt that uh, Belarus's president uh, required the approval of Vladimir Putin in order to engage in this sort of really, really sinister uh, behavior. Yeah. So Russia, Russia, Russia's always behind this. And mm. the destabilization of the region is, is something that we sh- really should be keeping an eye on because those borders, Latvia's borders, Poland's borders, Lithuania's borders are also NATO's borders and, and therefore right. part of Canada's shared border. Well, we uh, remember those who we lost in the great wars, and we often forget that there are still soldiers from this country who are uh, very much part of active duty today in more than just peacekeeping, um, you know, roles. So we'll we'll keep an eye on this. I always appreciate your insight and kind of putting these uh, measures on my radar. So I know we'll talk again. Marcus, thank you. Freedom is fragile and we need to defend it. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Absolutely. Marcus Colgat joining us uh, more than we thought uh, we'd have him, but not because uh, he's not good. It's just that there's so much to talk about in the grander scale that does affect us here at home. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point and this is Global News Radio.